Well, this psalm is the perfect preparatory psalm for the book of Ephesians before we go into that book of Ephesians. You know, it's interesting when, you know, doing this little Psalms series, what I've been doing is just kind of reading the Psalms and then finding something that just grabs a hold of my mind and heart. And then you do that and you, you can't do that with the whole Bible because otherwise you eventually notice that the preacher only ever preaches on a certain kind of topic because that's all he's ever after. So our normal rhythm is to go verse by verse through a whole book, but the Psalms being 150 individual Psalms, some having connections, but some standing alone. Uh, looking at, for me, this, this series has been just a part of opening up to the Psalms and just letting it jump out. And 133 just would not let me go all week long. And then the Lord put it together in my mind that this is the perfect preparatory Psalm to start Ephesians next week. Because the book of Ephesians is all about the church, being unified in the church, but being better than that, being in Christ as a unified church, and having and experiencing all the riches therein. So this psalm sets us up for that, and it shows something that I'm always about us seeing and knowing, that whatever the Bible talks about, it talks about everywhere. It's internally consistent. It's not just in one place or another. It's, it's all one message. It's all coherent. So we can see in Ephesians what we can see in, one, in Psalm 133, and then the reverse as well. So we're doing that, but it's also setting us up for Ephesians, but it's also a timely psalm in the life of our church. What I wanna do this morning, what I intend to do this morning is make this personal for us, for us here. Now, all scripture is personal for us and all scripture is to be preached everywhere that Christ is known. We know that. But what I intend to do is make this personal for us as a church not a generic sermon that could be taken over to Estonia or taken to Ethiopia. Parts of it will be that, but parts of it need to be for us, our church, faith Bible right here. That's what I intend to do. So I hope that you can see that because we are, as a church, in a sweet season. By God's grace alone, we are in a sweet season. And it's not an accident and it's also not a given. So we need to think through what is biblical unity? What is it? How do we cultivate it and maintain it when we have it? And like a family, we must work in the spirit to maintain the sweet unity that God has given us through Jesus Christ. So that's our heart this morning. What we're gonna do first is just walk through the text. It's just three verses. So you may get out by lunch. It's just three, but (laughs) no promises. Let's just look at verse one. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now this is, it says that the title of the Psalm is a song of ascents. Now that context is, we've we've done one of these before in this series, when the people of God during the three major feasts on the old covenant calendar would all come to Jerusalem. And it's a Psalm of ascents, or maybe your Bible might say degrees, because you're going up in elevation. No matter where you're coming from, you go up to Jerusalem because it's on a hill called Zion, which we'll get to in verse three. But that's what it is. And the tone of this Psalm is cheerfulness and joy because we have a love of God and he loves us and we have a love for our brothers and sisters and they love us. 
So this is a tone of cheerfulness and joy. And who would argue with this? Who rejoices in disunity? Who likes going to Thanksgiving knowing we're gonna have a throwdown about some political problem? Nobody wants that. Do you enjoy sitting amongst the fans of the other team at any game? No. When I was in college, I went to Texas A&M, my best friend from high school, Andy Kachera, he went to Baylor and Baylor was playing A&M and I was like, hey man, you come to the game, I'll get ticket for you and you can sit with us. If you've ever been to an A&M football game, there's a problem with what I did to my friend because the student section is three decks of standing sideways. You can't even sit down and you can't even stand broad. You stand like this because everybody's crammed in there like sardines, human sardines, and you're on the third deck, which is essentially solar flares come and graze your head. You're that high up, it's so hot. And it's just a sea of maroon, and he's there wearing his green shirt, and we're playing Baylor. This is before RG3, before they were any good. They were awful, and every time we scored, and we ended up being like seven and five that year, but every time they scored, they were like, hey, Baylor's to talk to my friend. Brutal for him. Everybody was unified, but he was disunified. And now I'm torn between my friend and then these guys. It's just, nobody likes that. Nobody says how good and pleasant it is when we have disunity. We can see that this, we agree with this. We all love unity. We all love harmony. We all love peace. So you see that and you go, yes, I agree with that. But what is this unity? It's a special unity. What does it say? How good and pleasant it is when brothers... Also encapsulated in that is sisters, brothers and sisters, when they dwell in unity. This is about the family of God. There exists a goodness and a pleasantness in Christian brotherhood, including our sisters, Christian brotherhood, sisterhood, siblinghood, if you will, a unity that no other group has. That's what we have. We come to worship and we leave our worldly identifiers at the door. It's not that we become some kind of amorphous blob or some uh, ambiguous, non-distinct, everybody's the same. No, no, no. At the door, those things that the world says divides you. But we still come in being all that we are, being the gender that we are, being the nationality that we are. But it's not a divisive thing. It's a mosaic thing. It's a tapestry thing. That's what, that's what Galatians 3, 26 through 28 means. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For you were all baptized, all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither, therefore, Jew nor Greek, nor there is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. That doesn't mean that there are no distinctions and we have no uniqueness. It means that those dividing things that exist in the world don't exist here. You are who you are, but they don't divide us. We are sons and daughters and we are thus siblings. And what does the Galatians say? Why is that? It's through faith in Christ through the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He is our unifier. And if Christ unites us, nothing can divide us because there is no greater power that exists than Christ and what he's done. So look at verse two now. It's like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I get it. When I think about unity, what I think about is ancient Near Eastern men oiling their beards. This makes perfect sense. Well, let me just say, this is packed with meaning. Let me just pull it out, okay? So let's go with oil first. The old covenant anointing oil, Exodus 30, 22 and following. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, 
Take also for yourselves the finest of spices, of flowing myrrh, 500 shekels, and of fragrant cinnamon, half as much, 250, and of fragrant cane, 250, and of cassia, 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive oil, a hen. That's a measuring bucket. You shall make of these a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture, the work of a perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. First thing we know, this is a sweet-smelling, perfumey oil. And it's from what? A gathering of all different kinds of ingredients. Not the same kind, all different kinds. Comes together, makes a sweet smell. And then what do you do with it? Leviticus 8, 12. Then he poured, he, Moses, poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Now, what did that oil do to Aaron? It consecrated him. It set him apart as holy to God. Aaron was a priest and his sons are all priests. So what this oil did, it was poured on his head and nobody else's, his immediate sons and nobody else. It was only for them. They're set apart for God, for service in the worship of the people of God. And the priests of the tribe of Levites, when they come into the land, as we see, you see later in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that they don't have any portion of land given to them. They have no inheritance. They have no way to make a bunch of money. Everybody else has land, and they contribute that, and the Levites live off of that because God didn't want the Levites distracted farming and ranching instead of conducting the worship of God. They're set aside just for that. And they're told their inheritance will be the Lord, not land. So Aaron set apart in this holiness as a priest. Now, what did it say in Psalm 133? It went to the top of his head, to his beard, all the way to the tail of his robe, the robe going to the ground pretty much, all the way to the hem of his robe. All of Aaron was consecrated to God, all of him. It wasn't just part of him, it wasn't a part-time job, it was all of him. Now let's look at this unity metaphor that's baked into this. The unity of Christ's church is a sweet-smelling aroma. It smells good, it makes us appealing to be around, like this perfume. It's attractive to outsiders. Our unity also sets us apart from the populace, just like Aaron is set apart from the rest of the nation. We have unity here in a way that we don't and we can't anywhere else and with anybody else. Unity also, what does it do? It qualifies us to serve God. Aaron can't be qualified to serve God until he's anointed with that oil. And then if we as a church don't have unity, which is the oil in the illustration, then we are not qualified to serve. What good are we to anybody else if we're fighting and bickering and arguing and we have no idea what we believe, who we are, where we're going and what we're doing. But unity qualifies us to go serve, to go actually be of use for the kingdom of God. And our unity drenches us. It's all encompassing. So you saw the image of, of the, the oil going down and it wasn't like Aaron got a bucket poured upon him, but it covered from the top of his head to the edge of his robe. It, it was supposed to drain down to there. That's what marks us. That's what everybody can see. And you're totally unified like a body. It's not like, well, a piece of the eye is dedicated to the body. No, all that the eyeball is, is all in, in that body. And we, that's why we had Greg read from Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. It ends with that body imagery. 
that all that we are is unified. Not just the part, well, I'm unified on Sundays and in these ways and in these things. No, it's all that I am always, all the time, unified. The church then becomes central for us. It's not a part of our lives like the gym or the office or the HOA. It's central to us. That's where we have unity. The people of God is our central circle. Listen how Spurgeon said it. He said, what a sacred thing must brotherly love, unity, be when it can be likened to an oil which must never be poured on any man but on the Lord's high priest alone. How sacred must unity be if that's the illustration? But there's one more, verse three. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. From there, the Lord commanded the blessing of life forever. Dew is often in the Old Testament in particular, uh, expressive of God's blessing or favor. The dew, so let me give you an example. Genesis 27, 28, a prayer coming down. Now may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and the abundance of grain and new wine, a blessing, God's favor. Deuteronomy 33, 28. So Israel dwells in security, the fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine. Heaven also drops down dew. See, dew in a desert land is precious because you don't get a lot of rain, but your plants need moisture. And that dew is mysterious and you don't know where it comes from, but it covers everything. And it gives sustenance in a place that would otherwise be uninhabitable. That's what the dew does. It's mysterious, but it's welcomed by an agrarian people. Now, think about the coverage that's supposed to be here. So you saw Hermon and Zion. Both of those are mountains. Both of those are mountains. Mount Hermon is at the very northern border of Israel. Mount Zion is at the very bottom. Not the very bottom of the border, but that's where nothing much is further south than Zion. That's where Jerusalem is. So spanning the whole land, you have these two mountains. Mount Hermon is massive. Mount Zion's pretty small. But the dew on Mount Hermon is pictured as being so abundant. Now, there was a lot of rain, a lot of water sources on Mount Hermon, but the dew, meaning blessing of God, think about water, comes down from Hermon and covers all the land all the way to Zion. Covers all of the people of God, no matter where they live in the land, it spreads out between both of those mountains and it comes down upon them, the dew from the mountain. Now, you didn't know that my favorite soda was so sanctified. I've known Mountain Dew from my youth, veins. But here's the unity metaphor, the unity of the people of God. If it's like that dew, the dew on Mount Hermon, and it comes down, then everybody, it's everywhere. And it comes from on high down to even the lowest. That's the unity all the way, sustaining their lives all the way to the end where eternal life begins. We dwell in unity in this life because we will do so in life eternal. We're gonna make more of that here in a little bit, but think about it. In heaven, denominations go away and debates are over. Somebody's gonna be right and somebody's gonna be wrong, but Christ is everything. So being in Christ, that's the ultimate unity. That's where it comes from. And it's gonna settle all of it. This is how, when Spurgeon opened up their, uh, they, they built the, the new building that he was in. It's called the Metropolitan Tabernacle can't use that kind of title anymore, but it was not weird or wildly charismatic when he was in the 1800s. But he names it that because he thinks that this is, we're in the city and this is temporary. The tabernacle is a, is a tent. This is temporary. And so when he opens that building up, the first sermon that he gives, he says this, 
to just kind of consecrate the place. He says, I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, meaning that new church building, as long as this platform shall stand and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I'm never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. But if I am asked to say, what is my creed? I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. He said, my venerable predecessor, Dr. Gill, has left a body of divinity admirable and excellent in all its way. Meaning the pastor, like two guys before him, wrote a systematic theology book, very famous and still very useful. He said, but the body of divinity to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is not his system of divinity or any other human treatise, but Christ Jesus, who is the sum and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. That's the unity that we're after. That's the unity that looks like dew flowing from Hermon to Zion. That's the unity that looks like oil poured on top of Aaron's head, smelling so sweet and beautiful and covering all that he is. It's Jesus Christ. Now let's define unity. Because when we say that, everybody that's a Christian at all, minus maybe that Calvinist bit in the Spurgeon talk, but everybody that's a Christian, amen to all of that. We all want unity. Everybody wants unity everywhere you go. We talk about it everywhere. Even unbelievers talk about it all the time. But what is it? Let's look at the Hebrew word is actually the word yahad. It just means union, assembly, community. We get that. We, we understand that. To make one so to make into one. Now, the, a lot of countries adopt this. So the, the, the motto of the country of Jamaica is out of many, one people. The United States has on the presidential seal, e pluribus unum. So out of many, one. So that's a, that's a concept that's national in places, makes sense. But that same word, yahad, for unity in Psalm 133 is used in Micah 2.12 to talk about the faithful remnant of God. God says, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob, meaning the people of God. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together. That's the same word, yahad. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men, meaning they will be mighty. Now that unity, again, we're like, yes, I love that. Yes and amen. But there's a further definition to the word yahad. We can't overlook because that word also means, along with all of the, the community, the assembly, the making into one, it means to enter into the plan or thinking of a group. You enter into the plan or thinking of a group. Genuine, long-lasting unity can only exist around a body of truth. Our body of truth is this, the Bible. Now in our day, can you find a church? I mean, it, you may, but can you find a church that, that, that would say, no, no, we don't believe the Bible. Well, everybody says we believe the Bible and everybody says we teach the Bible. So what do we have to do now? We have to say, well, what do you believe the Bible teaches? So that's where we get to creeds, confessions, doctrinal statements, things like that, so that we're united. It's always the Bible, but I'm gonna distill out key ideas that it's in a more readable format so that you can read and know where we come from and what we are united around. See, because unity for unity's sake is always frail and always brittle and it always falls. 
If you're just, we just want to be unified, well, what are you unified around? Just being unified. Now, that when you try to keep making the tent bigger and bigger to fit everybody in, then what happens to the middle of the tent? It falls in on itself. You got to have an immovable pole at the middle that we all center around so it doesn't collapse on itself. The old saying, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. So we have to unify around the truth. See, the anointing oil of Aaron, that's the picture in verse two, is associated with true worship. That's in the middle of God giving the law. In Exodus, in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, God's giving the law. He's speaking to his people. This is who I am. I am no other way. This is what is true. There is no truth in this category anywhere else. This is how you worship me. There is no other way. It's all around the worship of God. No other religious ideas were acceptable. They were lies. Aaron and his sons were to make sure that no delusion of the truth ever happened. So look at the consequence for false worship. Exodus 22, 20. He who sacrifices to any God other than to the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. Serious. False teaching. So that's false worship. What about just false teachers? Deuteronomy 18, 20. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Serious. This is serious that God's not kidding around. And then you get to a living example of this. Follow along with me in Numbers 25. I'm going to read you just these first 13 verses, and you'll see when this was threatened in the middle of God giving the word that it got dealt with. Verse 1, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. So they're intermarrying, and what are they doing? Verse 2, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal, or we say Baal an idol of Peor, that's an area. And the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Do you realize what's happened? Some Jewish young man is parading his unbelieving, idol-worshiping, harlot of a new wife through the middle of the camp. Everybody can see it. Weeping is already happening because of this. This guy doesn't give a rip, and he's gonna do it anyways in front of everybody. So when he's walking through, verse seven, then Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, remember the oil is on Aaron's head and his sons, the priest saw it. He arose from the midst of the congregation, took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through. And if the spear is going through both of them, you know what's happening. The man of Israel and the woman threw the body. So the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace. 
And it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. Now, I mean, why bring that up? This is a moment of many, many things, but it's also a moment of unity. Unity could not include Baal worship. That could not be included. Unity could not include unholy living. I couldn't include that. The truth of God was essential to the unity of the people of God, and God grants uh, Phineas a perpetual covenant of what? Peace. He brought peace because he kept the unity at the forefront and many other things, the name of God. But why and how? Because his severe actions were, were according to the truth and the promised and it promoted rather genuine unity for the remaining people of God. Yahad, unity from Psalm 133. What that is, is it means that outsiders join God's people and conform to our thinking. It's not that God's people tolerate aberrant thinking in their midst. That's what true unity must be. It's essential for a church. When we talk about the American church, so many things to be encouraged about, but many, many things to be discouraged about. One of the things is that unity is around anything. And primarily what unity is around is the word experience. Come here and have an experience. I don't care what you believe. I don't care how you live. Just experience this and like this experience, enjoy this experience. That's where we unify. But that crumbles under the weight of the pressing wickedness of the day, just like it always has and always will. Unity at all costs, truth is negotiable, is the mantra of the modern evangelical church. It leads, leads to just an open rejection of God. Eventually, you will disunify yourself with somebody if you say God is Trinity. You will disunify yourself with somebody when you say God explains himself as male. We don't pray to mother God, but there are churches that do that. You're gonna disunify in some way, so it's eventually gonna get all the way to the doctrine of God, not just all these other peripheral things on how we live and act. Open rejection of God and rampant wickedness and suffering. So our church, us, you, all of us together, we must be different. We must be different. We want unity that is good and pleasant and precious to God. And in our love for the lost, we draw them to conform to the mind of God. We don't conform ourselves to their chosen sins. That's where we have unity. We want God's unity. So significantly harder to nourish and maintain. We know that, we understand that. Not, but we must remain committed to it, but we can't be the frozen chosen and we can't be love is love. There must be something that we pray for God's gift of unity. Did you see in those three verses that three times, what does it say? Come down upon, come down upon. Where does unity come from? And both those illustrations, the oil and the dew, it comes from on high down low. It comes from God, not us. We don't build it up to God, he gives it to us. It comes from him, and it's these three things, the goodness, the pleasantness, the preciousness of unity. That word good in verse one is the word tov in Hebrew. It's like beginner's Hebrew. That's one of your vocab words. It just means what it says, good, pleasant, agreeable. And it's the same word in Genesis one that gets repeated over and over again when God creates and saw that it was good. 
So this is the same kind of good. The work of God and the way that God built creation, he says, that's good. He builds his church and says, that's good. Actual good. Pleasant is the next word. It's the Hebrew word naim. It means delightful, pleasant, sweet, lovely. It's the same word from Song of Solomon 1.16, or Solomon's referring to his bride. Pleasant, lovely, beautiful. And throughout church history, the allegory of Christ referring to his church. Good, pleasant, lovely, desirable. And then precious that we see in verse two. Precious oil. It's the same word tov again. The same as the first word that gets translated good. So brothers and sisters, what I want to say right now, we have this in our church. We have it. Look, think about the church picnic. We all loved it and we got smoked in cornhole by a pregnant lady. We loved it and we want to do it again. And then think about the potluck. Everybody's staying, we're eating. It's not like we catered in five course meals. It's just people doing what they can. And if you didn't have any, any food to bring, you still got to eat. And everybody stayed and lingered. I mean, think about this. The elders and I often talk about nobody leaves when church is over. Everybody stays out in our lobby and hangs out. And then the, the building that we're in, it leaks pipes on 645 on Sunday mornings. Our sign looks like I got hit by lightning. And here we are. Here we are. When I do new, I wish everybody could be in new member interviews. It's the most blessed, one of the most blessed things I get to do as a pastor and we as elders get to do. Because people will say, and it's ad nauseum how often this gets said, is everybody was just so friendly here. Everybody shook our hand and welcomed us and came up to us in some way. And, and, I, and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I, nothing. <laughs> I don't have a, hey, there's how to be a welcoming church. 15 steps, buy my book, get this teaching series. We don't have any of that stuff. <laughs> but it keeps happening over and over. We don't have assigned greeters, but people get greeted. If you've ever been a new person here, then you feel like, hey, okay, whoa, let me go to the bathroom. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> we don't have assigned greeters. It's not like assigned greeters are bad, but that's just one thing we haven't gotten around to organizing yet, but it just keeps happening. We don't have assigned hospitality service director, but when you have a baby, you get meals. When you're sick, people call you and bring you food. When you're bereaved, people send cards and bring meals. It happens in our church. Now, isn't that not good, pleasant, and precious? That's good and pleasant and precious. We must do all that we can to protect that and nurture that. Protect that and nurture that without becoming exclusive. Nobody else can come in because you're going to ruin it. That's the balance. We have to do that. So dwelling in unity must then become a virus that we give to every new person. That everybody that comes in, they catch that virus and they just come along with it. That's what we have to do as a church. And I think that there are three major categories of ways that we can do that. The first one is church membership. We have to fight for unity. The first step is church membership. And now let me tell you why. Many people will say like, well, church membership, it ain't in the Bible. That word ain't even in there. Yeah, I get it. But the word member is there. You're a member of the body. And then you can be removed from it, which we'll get to in here in a little bit. So you can't be removed from something that you didn't join. So it's there. And then what does Jesus say about the, the way to heaven? The, the way, the path, and the gate is narrow. And the picture there is it's one body wide. You go in by yourself. Church membership has, in a way, be like that. 
We, we can't have a gate that's narrower or broader than heaven's. We can't have standards that are higher. Well, we'll see you in glory, but you're not, you can't be with us. We can't do that, but we have to do what heaven does. And so we need to know everybody that comes in and we should want to know. This shouldn't be like a, a brand preservation. It should be, I want to know who you are. And what we're after is, do you know the gospel and are you saved? It's not a theological quiz to check you all. We only want perfect people in here. No, no, no. Are you of sheep of Christ? Then get in here. That's what we're after. And church membership is how we know our people. Are you born again? And then also it's how do you know that we know who we are and we aren't looking for changes? We are here for the glory of Christ. Are you here for the glory of Christ? Then get in. That's what we're for. Church membership matters. Second thing, how we fight for and preserve and maintain unity is church fellowship. We got to be together. We got to love and grow and support each other. And it can't be reliant upon the leadership of the church to facilitate that for. We are not kindergartners. We know how to talk to each other. You have to make kindergarten. Okay, he said something to you. Now you say something to him. Be nice, share, hey, invite him in, have him come in. No, we need to just do that. Just be together, invite people over, bring them to your house, hang around, meet new people. If you don't know them, you should know them. Go get to know them. We, we do that by loving, growing, supporting each other. And we appreciate all of the physical, or you could say just earthy, not sinful, but just things of this earth, the uniquenesses that we all have. Now, I went through uh, all of our, I have, a, I have a book for prayer, and then in on that book is a note card. It has everybody's last name, all the family's last names on that card. Went through that card for this principle that unity does not equal uniformity. We are unified. We are not uniform. We're unified. Look around the room and just note that we are not uniform. Let me just take nationalities. We got people from El Salvador, Mexico, Nigeria, India, Polynesia, European, that means general white bread, <laughs> African-American, Greek, Russian, Ukrainian, Chinese in our church. Think about backgrounds. We got people from Christian homes, people from non-Christian homes. We got people from single parent homes. We have people that are a part of all three of those. We got people that are from broken homes, people that were adopted, are adopting or have adopted. There's wicked people who are from wicked, worldly, horrible backgrounds before they got saved. There were people who grew up very sheltered before they got saved. People who are metropolitan, they've been all over, they've been in big cities. People who are hyper-local, they've never left Collin County. We got people who are, believe this or believe it or not, we have people who are Eagles fans and Longhorn fans. I'm saying like, we let you in. And think about, we got, and this is socioeconomic now. Move. We have people who have been before or are near now, even the poverty line. We got middle class, upper middle class, people who are paycheck to paycheck. We got people who are early retirees, people who got family money, people who are first generation college grads, people who have no college at all. We got Californians, Georgians, Tennesseans, people from Arkansas, they don't have a way to say that plural. People from Arkansas, people from New Jersey, New York, Iowa, Nebraska, Virginia, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Utah, New Hampshire. And we're a small church and we're all here dwelling in unity. Now look around, would you be friends with some of these people if they weren't in your church? You see Paul Berg walking down the street, you're like, man, I'll be friends with him. <laughs> no, but he's in your church, you have to. 
we come together. That's what brings us together. Without Christ, would we know each other? Would we love each other? Now then appreciate this. So all of those things are critical, but in the fellowship category of how we preserve and fight for unity that Psalm 133 talks about, we have to appreciate and understand everybody at a different level of sanctification. That has to happen. Now, you know I love Pilgrim's Progress, and in book two, it's a group. Book one, it's Christian by himself. Book two is a group of people, and they're all across the map. You have Christiana and Mercy are two women who seem to represent most of us. Average Christians who feel despair, but feel joy, who feel scared, but then feel brave, who, who have glimpses of immaturity, but then progressing maturity. But then you have this whole other category of characters that are strong. You have Mr. Valiant for truth, old, honest, Mr. Standfast. You have the, the pastor figure, Mr. Greatheart. They are strong and they don't show any noticeable spiritual immaturity, but then you have in that same group and each of them crosses over the river into the, Mount, or into the city of celestial bliss of, to Zion. You have weak people, Mr. Ready to Halt, meaning he's always limping and he has crutches his whole life. He doesn't need them, but he has them. The Christian who's just doubting their salvation or struggling with this, that's represented by Mr. Ready to Halt. And then you have somebody called Mr. Despondency, you know what his problem is? He's always downcast. And he has a daughter called Much Afraid. We have those kinds of people. And then Mr. Feeble Mind. But they all make it to heaven. And they all travel that pilgrim path together. So we have to understand that that's our church. We have to have room for people to grow. We don't only take perfectly sanctified people. We have to have room to grow. We must know each other enough and understand each other enough to know where they are so that when that person in Bible study sees something and is excited that you've known for 20 years, you get excited because they got it. And that's amazing. That's what we're after. Looking for genuine faith and repentance is what we do, not perfect faith and perfect repentance. That's what we can't do. See, the oil, again, it comes on Aaron's head, the top of his head, the head, you know, the crown of the central uh, nervous system of your body, but where does it go to? The edge of the rose. And it's mighty, the dew is in mighty Mount Hermon, but it also gets down to puny little Mount Zion. So the greatest and the weak are all covered in the unity that marks the body of Christ. And then the last way that we preserve this is the most forgotten one, but it's church discipline. Now, when I say that, you immediately think clubbing somebody till they leave the building. Church discipline biblically starts at step one, and that's brother, sister, I, I, what you did there, what I heard there, I, I think that was sin. And then that's, oh, you're right. Oh, gosh, I can't believe it. Thank you for telling me. Would you please forgive me? Pray and know that we stand forgiven and we're united together. That should be happening all the time all the time, because we're always sinning all the time. So it's lovingly confront, apologize and forgive all the time. Now there is that last and final step of, of excommunication or just removal, and that should break our hearts. But that heartbreak shouldn't keep us from doing it. It should break our hearts, and we do that for the glory of Christ's name, for the protection of his sheep, and for the preservation of unity. Now lastly, we look at this, the eternality of unity. You see that last phrase of verse three, 
for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. Where is unity located? So it seems that what David did at this verse is he has unity located in Zion. So Zion's a puny mountain. Mountain Hermon is huge and it flows down to it. But what happens in Zion doesn't happen in Hermon. Worship happens at Zion. That's where you have to come. That's where the temple is. That's where the priests are. So the sacrifices are made and that's what God had ordained in the old covenant. So that's where worship happens. And they sang this psalm on the way there and on the way home. Unity lives in the place of worship in the gathered assembly. That's where it lives. And the same is true of the church, which is why you need to be here physically. Even though we're crammed into this weird shaped room, you need to be here physically. It should hurt when you're pulled away. I wish that I could have been there. I wanted to be with my brothers and sisters. We dwell in unity in Zion. That's where we dwell. We don't dwell in unity in the Facebook chat of the live stream. We have unity at a place we come together. The church is where the Lord gives eternal life in Christ. Can you have eternal life? What does it say? Life forever, verse three. Can you have that outside the gathering of the people of God? It's possible, yes. It's also possible for a human baby to be raised by a clan of orangutans, but not desirable. It's not ideal, and nobody would want that for any human baby. So in the church, that's where, where does it say that God states his command of the blessing of eternal life? Where is that? In the place where brothers dwell in unity. That's where. And where do brothers dwell in unity? In the new covenant, they dwell in the church. But Zion has two meanings in the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament as well. A physical place and a heavenly place. There's a physical place called Mount Zion where the temple is built in the city of Jerusalem in a real place that still exists even to this day in the nation of Israel. But also it refers to glory, to heaven, the forever Zion. And there, of course, is perfect unity among Christ's elect. Perfect, sustained, unending unity. Can you imagine that? Sometimes we need to take just a facet of heaven and just think about it for a long time. Think about what unity would look like always. Never a disagreement, not on carpet color, on whether we have wine or juice, not a disagreement upon what kind of TVs we should put up on the walls, no disagreements about where to go or what this verse means or how we apply it. None of that. It's all gone. We only know perfect sustained, eternal unity. So why would we not want to practice here what will be our exclusive experience there? That's what the Christian life is, right? I'm trying to live more like I will be forever in glory and less like I could be here on earth. And if you don't enjoy, this is the famous um, turn of phrase of J.C. Ryle, if you hate holiness, if you hate unity, if you hate what the Bible promises here, why would you want to go to heaven? That's all there is. So we strive for that here for the glory of God and for the consistency or for the fulfillment rather of Jesus's prayer. Jesus prays, here we close. In John 17, verses 22 through 23. This is Jesus's high priestly prayer. He prays this over his disciples in the upper room. Before tomorrow, he gets crucified 
He prays this. This is a snippet of it, just two verses. The glory which you have given me, Jesus praying to the Father, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. It is a glorious thing. It is in keeping with the glory that the triune God of the universe has for us to be one, to be unified. In verse 23, and I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected or matured in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Do you see what Jesus has attached to unity? He puts the word there, perfect, perfected in unity, so that, so we need to grow and to be matured in unity, so that what? So the world may know that the Father sent the only begotten Son. So our unity is not just so that we have an awesome time at a church that we like with lots of cool people. That's piece of it. But it's also so that everybody else out there can understand and begin to understand and then come to the fulfillment of understanding that Jesus was sent by the Father to save sinners. And he already said that in John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's what our unity ultimately does. Sometimes we think that if we focus too much on the church and the life of the church, then what we're saying is we don't give a rip about the lost who are dying and going to hell. It's not that. It's both and. And it's necessary for. Just as Aaron's the oil on Aaron's head qualifies him for service, our unity qualifies us. We can bring this. Come here. Come here and listen to the gospel. Come here and know you're not going to get stared at and evaluated and talked about and, and pointed out. Come here and know that you're going to hear the Lord Jesus Christ preach for the salvation of your souls and that when you repent and believe, you are grafted in as one of us no matter what you've done and no matter where you've been. The unity of the church is evangelistic as much as it is discipleship. So our task is Ephesians 4.3. This is it being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's what we do. We are diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And may everything that we do be built towards that so that we disciple, we love, we care, we build up one another and that we smell so good to those that God is calling to himself from outside the fold, that they gotta come in and see if it's real. They gotta come and see, is, are you really like that? Are really, there are really people that are all that kind of diverse and all different and all, and they're really all together? And there's no hierarchy? There's not cool kids sitting in the front row? Losers sitting in the back row? There's no like, well, if you give so much, then you get to sit real close to the pulpit? Or rather, you give so much, you can sit way far away from the pulpit? None of that matters. You can just come in. Come in and know that what we're after is preaching and proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ and preserving the unity and the bond of peace. May it be so at Faith Bible. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for the truth that you packed condensely into three verses of Psalm 
three little verses of hymn, of song, that your people sang for centuries going to worship. And we now, as the New Covenant Church, study and fills our hearts for centuries after Christ has come and fulfilled all of that temple worship. And now he's the perfect lamb, sacrificed once for all. And now we have the fullness of this unity. We are all equally indwelt by the Spirit. Lord, you didn't portion out your Spirit and give more to the more useful and less to the others. You gave us all the same Spirit and you gave us all the same Bible and you brought us all together in each little location to join together, to, to look impossible to the rest of the world. Lord, that right now we're, we're praying to you we're coming before you with bended knee and humble hearts. And there are brothers and sisters doing that in whispers and hushed tones in Iran and in Pakistan. There are those doing it in just ramshackle shacks in Haiti and in Papua New Guinea. There are people doing that with their radios turned on, listening for bomb threats in Ukraine. You have your people all over the world, and we're unified with them. But because you've made us embodied creatures, we have to be in one place. And so thank you for bringing us all together here. Thank you for giving us the assurance that none of us are here because of some accoutrements. None of us are here for extra things because we have bounce houses and smoke machines and a fancy building. Lord, this could not be a more undesirable place and a, a more useless facility for the <laughs> gathering, singing, praising, and preaching, but yet you have brought your people together. So we take no credit. We give you all credit. You have done this, and we ask that you would sustain it. We ask that you would have us all be humble and low in heart, that none of us would think better of ourselves than we ought to think, that we might look upon everybody with compassion, we might look upon everybody in our church as somebody that we owe our lives to, to serve and to support, to weep when they weep and rejoice when they rejoice. May that be always true. And may we all, not just elders and deacons, but may we all labor, strive to preserve that unity in the spirit. It's only in the spirit that you bring us all together. We're different enough that we couldn't be together, all of us as we are now without your spirit. And may it be as we find out as Ephesians unfolds in the coming weeks that we know that we are in Christ, located in Christ. That when we see each other, we just see the glory of our risen savior whose blood paid it all and all to him we owe. So we can help move furniture, we can bring food, we can rejoice and share a cup of coffee, we can get into the word and, and strive and sharpen each other. May that be the case. And Lord, also, may you see fit to bring in many sheep into your fold through our humble efforts of striving to be faithful to the word. Thank you, Father, for your grace and for your goodness. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice upon the cross and for your unending ministry with us, that you are with us even to the end of the age. We cling to that promise in our dark days, knowing that there is nothing but light ahead. And this we pray in your name. Amen.